0: We are finishing a series in the book of Jude. And we're looking at the last two verses of the book of Jude. You know, sometimes when we think about a person's last words, we think that they're particularly important. I don't know if they should be thought of as particularly important, but we think for whatever reason that most people are going to save their best words for last, right? And we sort of endue with meaning and significance, and a certain weightiness, the very last words that we have from a person. And so it becomes a trope, you know, in a movie, we want to hear that person's last words on their deathbed, because they're going to give the, the, the character some sort of, you know, internal moment that's going to change them and make them better, or fix the problems, or crush them, or, or dispirit them. Um, i can even remember when uh, i was a child and uh, i must have been in early high school and uh, my my dog dislocated her rear leg hip and uh, she was just limping around and she just she didn't have the strength to do anything and there must have been some internal damage there and my parents were away like a dinner party or whatever and my brother and i were home alone and 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 she passed away Uh, In our arms, and I mean, it's really sad and stuff. But like, even even like with the dog, like we we kind of like wanted to, you know, was was something in her manner. She was a mean dog, but like there was, (laughs) but in that moment, she was so gentle and so sweet, you know, not like she lived in real life, you know, and you know, like we wanted to put extra significance. I mean, it was a it was a mean. Dog, like she bit me. I don't know how many hundreds of times. I mean, drawing blood, bite. Um, But we loved that dog anyways because she was our dog, and and so those final moments, you know, you know, we imagined that she just really wanted to be with us, and she just really wanted to be held by us. Maybe she did. Um, I maybe she just couldn't get away fast enough. Uh, She was a mean dog, but we, but we just. There, there is something that's significant about it. Usually, and if we know it, if we know that we've got a last chance to say something, we, wanna, we want it to be significant. And if we've got an opportunity to plan it, all the more so. And that's what we come to in the book of Jude here. Jude is going to close his letter with a doxology, with a praise to God. And yet, even though it's a praise, uh, he wants to convey something to his audience. He's not just praising God simply for the sake of praising God. He's writing a letter in the ancient world in which this letter would have taken days or weeks or months to get to its recipients, and so everything he says matters. And this is the last thing he's going to leave them with. And what Jude wants them to understand is that the God who holds us secure until the very end is worthy of all praise for all time. And as far as Jude's praise goes, there really is a matter of who, there's a matter of what he's do, and there's a matter of what he can do. So, who, what, uh, uh, what he's do, and what he can do. So, that's sort of our outline. Uh, so, look in the book of Jude, the very last two verses, Jude 24 and 25. If you're not going digital, you've got the paper in front of you, go to the very back, you're going to hit Revelation. And if you go forward just a little bit, you'll probably find one page that Jude is on. And Jude writes this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Jude tells us who he's praying. This is the who. And he tells it to us with two phrases. The first one is, to him who is able, in verse 24. And then Jude spells that out for us in verse 25, to the only God. Judah offers this doxology to the only God. There are no others. There are no gods to whom such honor could be given, much less to whom it would be deserved. And the word only rules out any possibility of another claimant. So, on one hand, that's a claim for monotheism, the belief in the existence of only one being who sits far above any and all others, whatever other beings there might be. And that was a fundamental Jewish belief. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That was the the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We might be tempted to think that this is beautiful and nice, but other nations and cultures and peoples and religions also reach out to this only God, just with different mythos and different traditions. After all, there's one God. Perhaps we all just reach out to that God in various ways. But but Jude makes that option impossible for us. He calls God our Savior. And, and that little term can't be divorced from the scriptures. It can't be divorced from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, the idea of God as Savior is a rich one throughout the Bible. It points to specific actions that God has undertaken. Actions He is undertaking and actions He will undertake. It identifies Yahweh, the Lord, over and against all other named deities by the ways He has intervened in our history. Isaiah 43 brings together these two streams of God's uniqueness and His role of Savior. There, the prophet Isaiah, speaking for God, says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen. That you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed. Nor shall there be any after me. I. I am the Lord. And besides me. There is no savior. So in what way was God savior? Well. He saved his people, the Israelites, from the oppression of Egypt and he made them into a nation. He saved his people from the hatred or, and the hands of repeated adversaries throughout their history. But more than this, these salvations were just a portion, a small part of his goal to rescue his special creation, mankind, from the greatest oppressor of all, which is our sin. ...that rightly ought to take our lives. If God is Savior... ...that means that the only God who exists... ...is the one who judged mankind in the garden. And is the one who called Abraham. And is the one who raised up Joseph in Egypt. Who ravaged Egypt with plagues. Who drove out the Canaanites. Who pushed back the Philistines. Who forced the God Dagon... ...to bow before the symbol of his presence... ...who humiliated the prophets of Baal... ...it means that he is the God... ...who sent his one and only son, Jesus... ...that the world might be saved through him. He is the God who by his spirit... ...convicts sinners of their sin... ...and they turn in faith and repentance. He is the God who will spare those repentant sinners... ...on the day of judgment. He is a God who has acted in our history is acting in our history, and will act in our history to save a people for Himself. And any claimant to be God who did not do, who is not doing, who will not do these acts of salvation, these specific acts that have occurred in our history, is not any God at all. And so Jude's praise is directed exclusively toward one God. And it's heightened by this phrase, through Jesus. What Jude meant by through Jesus is that all this praise that he is offering, all this praise that this one God is due can only be offered through Jesus. So Jude is not speaking of a God who is exclusively identified, but a God who is also exclusively accessed. Sometimes we use the expression proper channels. here. When we talk about proper channels, we talk about um, how to go about getting something done, right? Maybe you are at work or you're at school and you want to do something a little bit different than the way you've done it before. And it's a little bit out of the ordinary. You just can't do it on your own. And you're told that if you want... To do this, you have to go through the proper channels. Only the proper channels can get you the tools, or can get you the resources, or can get you the permissions that you need in order to do the thing that you want to do. And in the same way, pra- praise can only properly be offered to God through the proper channels. If you want access to God, you must go through Jesus. There is no other way for praise to get through. And in the other direction, there is no other way for salvation to come to you except through Jesus. So Jesus Himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Apostle Paul reminds us in the book of Romans. All of us to a one are rebels against a good and great king. And so we're removed from his presence and removed from relationship with the man, removed from relationship with the God who created us. But it's remedied and only remedied through Jesus. He is the the proper channel. In fact, he was the very means God used to save sinners. Though we deserve to die, spiritually, spiritually, eternally, apart from God, in hell. Jesus died in the place of sinners. And he rose from the dead to demonstrate that the price was paid in full and he had more than enough left in the bank. And those who come to Jesus in faith and repentance are brought back to God and receive a salvation of eternal life. So a couple of applications off that. Christian. accept no substitute. There is no God like our God. There is no name under heaven or in heaven who has done or can do what our God has done and does. He is God and there is no other. Do not stray from this good news. sinner, would you like to be restored to God? Because he has made a way for you. Come to him, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. How? Just trust him. Trust what he said he did on the cross. Trust what he says he'll do for you. And in your trust, you turn your back on your old way of life, your old habits, your dreams, and your priorities, and you surrender them to Jesus. You give up your attempts at being king or queen over your little life. And you honor King Jesus, who holds the universe, and who loves and cares and provides for those who are his. That is a big God and king. And this big God is due in an appropriately large amount. That's our second point, what he's due. Jude suggests it's right to ascribe four traits to God. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Glory, we're just going to take this one at a time. Glory is a word we hear but we don't always understand. And that's because there are two senses of the word glory. At least that's probably part of our... Misunderstanding. Glory is, on one hand, a person's honor and dignity and worth. So, in that sense, it's a, an objective reality. It's just what is there. A well known person with a good reputation has a sort of intrinsic glory that an unknown person or an unsavory person just doesn't have. But there's another sense in which glory is ascribed, it's given. To give glory is to recognize someone's worth and so give him or her credit. So yesterday, the late John McCain was eulogized by the likes of George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Joe Lieberman and many, many others. Uh, George Bush said, John was above all a man with a code. He lived by a set of public virtues that brought strength and purpose to his life and to his country. Barack Obama noted that while McCain was famous for his furious tempers, he was just as quick to forgive and ask for forgiveness. These public accolades of the man were, in a manner of speaking, giving him glory, ascribing credit and value to John McCain as George Bush or Barack Obama saw it. Peter Davids, in his commentary on Jude, notes that in this sense, glory is the one thing, maybe, that human beings can give to God. That is, it's the free recognition of who he is They can ascribe to him the honor of which he is indeed worthy. Of course, God's objective glory, the glory he has in and of himself, is far beyond John McCain's. It's infinite in scope. And and the more we study and learn and appreciate this God, the more glory we see and the more glory we can ascribe affirmatively in response. Second Jew describes majesty. And it's not completely unrelated to glory. It's God's greatness. In fact, it it might not even be too far off to say that God's majesty is synonymous or really close to synonymous with that other sense of glory, that intrinsic objective glory for which we ought to give glory. And the term could be used for kings, but it seems like the early Christians used the term only in reference to God or almost exclusively in reference to God. In fact, it is so consistently used of God alone that it almost has a sense of that greatness which only belongs to God. For the Christian reading Jude's letter as it ought for us, it it would have conveyed something of God's providential ruling of the universe. Something of his mercy and his utter compassion in the face of constant insults from him. It would have suggested his perfect justice that we'll see nothing go unaccounted for. Connoted his infinite wisdom his perfect holiness, his utter righteousness, his majesty, things that make God great, make worthy. Dominion. This word might be better rendered power, as some translations have it that way. But that power is often a matter of, it's power in the sense of being over and against other weaker powers so that. As one scholar put it, it has the sense of supremacy or victory. That is, God's power is supreme over any other power that might contest him. And it will secure victory on the last day. And that is the Christian's great hope. That God is in control and will bring about a realization of a perfect order when all is said and done. He has that power. An authority, which is a word closely connected to dominion or to power, but uh, slightly different in its sense it's a It can be translated power in a very general way, but it more accurately points to the authority to exercise the power, for example, a, a sharpshooter in the in the army might have the power to kill a man at a hundred yards, but barring authorization from the Congress, and the President, that ranger doesn't have the authority to do so. Now, if you have the authority to do something, arguably you have the power to do it also, but there is a difference between having the authority and having the power, isn't there? God, however, has all authority to exercise that great power any way he sees fit. So God is majestic and do our glory, and has supremacy over every power, and the right to fully exercise it. To what end? And that's, we get to the next point, what he can do. To what end does God have all this glory, and honor, and majesty, and power, and authority, and dominion? Well, God's purposes are manifold. He he has a lot of things that he is up to more than we could possibly comprehend, but Jude wants to direct us to one particular thing. It's a theme that he's touched on earlier in the letter, especially in the introduction, which makes it a fitting closure here. Jude writes, to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. There are many things God can do. But this is the only one Jude wants to bring to our attention before he says goodbye. The church or churches that Jude was writing to were inundated, as we've seen, by false teachers that threatened to ruin the faith of these Christians. Jude had been persuading them that this was a real threat that necessitated decisive action both against the false teachers and in support of their own souls. He even exhorted them to keep themselves in the faith. It was a real danger, and has been throughout the centuries, for false teaching and false teachers to creep into the true church, and so destroy it from the inside. Imagine reading this letter for the first time. It's 60, 65 A.D., you have toga, whatever sandals, whatever you imagine that time period. You've got your, your church. You probably don't have a, a church building. Your church is just a group of people you might meet in the home or business of someone who's a little bit more well-off in the church and they've given up their space for your use. And you get this letter, and and you know that there were some different teachings going on in the church. And you were pretty sure you were uncomfortable with them. Maybe you didn't feel like you had the power to do anything about it. Maybe you were a little bit timid. You didn't want to ruffle feathers. You didn't want to cause waves. Maybe you just convinced yourself that this would pass. It would work itself out. And as you work your way through it, you read the letter, paragraph after paragraph, and you hear Jude's words about contending for the faith because of these individuals who had snuck in with a perverted gospel, and, and there's a pit in your stomach. And you realize that this isn't a warm letter filled with updates on Jude's work and ministry. And you continue to read, and you see the examples that he brings out from the scriptures that that demonstrate that this is a real threat and your heart sinks a little bit more as you see how the current situation that you're dealing with lines up with past circumstances. And then Jude says you need to take action and you know he's right, but it's daunting and you're a little bit scared. You're maybe even worried that you or another brother or sister in the faith will fall away and be lost forever. And what's more, you're probably not going to be able to solve this tonight. It's not going to be a thing where you wake up in the morning and you've dealt with this. You're dealing with people. People are hard. It's going to be long. It's going to be arduous. You're going to be persuading people. You're going to be winning them back or winning them over for the first time. There are going to be setbacks. There's going to be some very dark days. But God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless for the presence and glory with great joy. What a motivation and a sobering encouragement for the readers of that letter some 19 and a half centuries ago. God will keep you. He is the one with the power to do that. You know, in, the, in the ancient world, the importance of a level and smooth path was not taken for granted. We, by contrast, complain about a little bit of broken glass in the bike lane along Euclid Avenue and the uh, sidewalk cracks and potholes and the fact that I've got to fill up my tire again. We understand the connection between good roads, good paths, and our safety, but our expectation is kind of the reverse. We expect good roads, and we complain about little imperfections. In the ancient world, they lived with horrible excuses for roads and praised the rare exceptions. Roads were handmade. They weren't flattened to perfection by large machinery. They didn't have thick liquid asphalt covering to smooth over any imperfections. In fact, they often weren't paved at all. There likely weren't many steel guardrails or fences near dangerous precipices. So one's safety and security rested significantly on one's ability to not fall. In a spiritual sense, walking through life a life of sin and evil is probably a lot more like those ancient paths than our modern roads. A better comparison might be a, a rugged, unpaved hiking trail with some steep cliffs on the side, and there are rocks, and there's roots, and there's sticks. There's wet leaves and damp moss, all threatening to hurl us to the ground. And if we should fall and if we should get injured, when would the next hiker wander by? How long would we lay there until somebody could grab us? There's no cell phone signal out that far. So the words God will keep you from stumbling are beautiful words. Jude is reminding his readers that though they may awkwardly lose their balance at times, they might slip around in the mud a bit, might feel like the road is loose beneath their feet. Nevertheless, God will not Let them fall down. He will hold them fast. Instead, God, the God who is powerful and has all the authority to use it, the God who is majestic and arrayed in His glorious attributes, the God who is Savior, will not just prevent your stumbling, but also to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. There's a negative side, not stumbling, and there's a positive side present you, and that word present is really its meaning by extension its root meaning is to stand so there's a there's a contrast of imagery that God will stand us up in the presence of his glory. It's the exact opposite of stumbling. God will steady your feet so that you remain securely standing on the last day. For a school Jewish or Christian reader of the letter, being in the presence of God should be a terrifying thing. Isaiah, that prophet again that we mentioned earlier, he had a vision of being in the presence of God. And his response was to cry out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Standing before the presence of God as far as we are concerned in and of ourselves is impossible because of our unrighteousness, because of our filthiness, because of our our sin. But God can make us stand before His glory as blameless. Our sins have been taken up into the body of Jesus so that while we are not perfect, our debt has been paid in full. But when we come to Jesus in faith and repentance, He gives us His Holy Spirit to grow us in righteousness until the day we stand before Him and are transformed fully into His likeness, perfect, blameless, with great joy, Jesus says. I think that among you, if there be any of you out there who have at this point to your life rejected the Christian message, one of your internal reasons for rejecting the Christian message, assuming you understand it, is that you think that in giving up your present life, you will give up happiness and joy. And and some of you Christians have perhaps internalize that same idea as well. You are enjoying your sins too much. And so you excuse them because you don't want to give up your joy, your fun. And those on the outside of the Christian community, they rightly look at the church and they say, hypocrites. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is great joy. Christianity is your greatest joy, being found in the peace and rest of a Savior who will never let you go. It's finding out that what you really need is Him. And so you have every real need met for eternity. So if you are a seeker, if you're not a Christian, if you're here listening to this, Reject Christianity if you must. But don't reject it for happiness sake. Because you're not rejecting Christianity, but you are rejecting the only thing that will ever give you true and everlasting happiness. And Christian, hold on to your sins if you must. But they won't make you ultimately happy. Don't believe that lie. Your happiness is found in your holiness. And it might just be that if you're choosing the joy of a sin over the joy of a Savior, that in the end, you might have neither joy nor the Savior. Well, these are Jude's final words to his people. But for those who know this God, who is Savior, and are called by his grace, and looking at these dark times ahead, knowing that there is a spiritual battle to be fought in the trenches of the church of all places, what a dark place that would be. But there are those here among us, I'm sure, who are or have been or will be in due time wrestling with these sorts of spiritual battles, even in their community of faith. God forbid it from happening here. But we are promised these sorts of trials. And if that day is here or when that day comes, the God who is due glory and majesty, dominion and authority, who holds history in the palm of his hand will keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before his glory with great joy and that confidence on those dark, dark days. We will fight on. Contending for the faith once for all, delivered the saints. let pray.